you've got a, a Bible with you and you want to turn to James chapter 2, that would be brilliant. There are some church Bibles over there. If anybody wants to just hop up and get one, um, please feel free. Um, now, I have to say, I read this passage a couple of weeks ago and thought, oh, this will be quite a straightforward sermon to preach. Um, then I read it again this week and I thought, actually, this is quite difficult. And then by the end of the week, I'm thinking, I've no idea what to say about this whatsoever. So I've sort of gone on a journey of deconstruction, I think, in, in feeling confident about what I'm saying. Um, it's a very specific passage of Scripture. But I hope that from it, we can gain something that takes us away some, some things that we need to go and think about. That's my hope and my prayer. You'll see what I mean when we read it. So James chapter 2, and I'm going to read, I think it's down to verse 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the, law, the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall commit, not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those, those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So I hope that's all very clear to you this morning. We need to pray for the Spirit's help, don't we? Let's pray again. Lord, we pray that your Spirit will help us with this complex passage. We pray that it will speak into our hearts and challenge perhaps where we show favoritism or discrimination in whatever areas of life. Lord, help us have hearts that long to resonate with your desires for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. I was once reading Clifton Life magazine when we lived in Bristol. It's a bit like Cheshire Life magazine, but only slightly posher. And there was a big article about having your kitchen redone, and this was the title. What do your taps say about you? Now, if you look at our kitchen taps, I hope very little, because they are not in the best state of repair. But the idea was, is that your kitchen taps could be the next marker of how you think you are, of how you think you've achieved, of your level of, sto of, of social standing. And it's the encouragement, you know, rise above the ordinary tap, achieve the sublime taps of paradise. You'll go away thinking about what do my taps say about me. What do my taps say about me? But like it or loathe it, we all compare ourselves to other people. 
It's sort of instinctive in our Western culture. We, we just do it. You may look at somebody and you think, well, they live in a better house than me. They've got a better job than me. They've got better qualifications than me. They're better looking than me. They wear better clothes than me, whatever it is. And you may think, well, they're sort of better than me. Or we may look the other way and we may think, well, here's somebody who actually they're doing a job that I'm very glad I don't have to do. They've not got as much money as I've got and we start to look down on them. And we find ourselves looking at human marker points. Now, there's inherent danger that in comparison, we look up to some and look down on others. We put human markers of value and worth and overlay it across the gospel. James chapter 2 is basically saying, this cannot be so. This must not be so. So the book of James is widely believed throughout church history to be written by James, the brother of Jesus. It's written to predominantly Jewish believers. We can see that as we go through the book. We'll see there are lots of um, references to the Jewish law, lots of just sort of hints that actually this is written to Jewish believers. It's probably written sometime in the mid-60s AD. And as Sarah was telling us last week, it's a book of incredible riches. There are so many things in this book. Through the history of the church, it's had a bit of a checkered history. Martin Luther didn't really like it. He called it an epistle of straw, thinking it was far too much about works and what we do rather than being saved by grace through faith. Now, as we go through the book of James, that is simply not the case. What James is about is asking those big, so what questions. What do we do because we're saved by faith, by grace? How does the spirit transform us? How does our life look because we love Jesus? What is going to happen if we've decided to follow him. So I've used this illustration a lot, but you know how an aeroplane flies across the sky and you see the vapor trail? You know, the aeroplane is like us saved by, um, by faith through grace. The vapor trail is the works that follow. It doesn't save us, but it should be there. It's evidence of what has already happened. So James, as we go through it, is a very practical writer. He's not like Paul. We don't get these sweeping bits of teaching on doctrine. But it's all this kind of stuff about, well, what does that mean for you in church? What does that mean by the way you speak? What does it mean in terms of how you think about life? And it's actually quite like the book of Proverbs. If you read the book of Proverbs and read James, you'll see there's quite a lot of similarities. And it takes us on a bit of a winding road. So you'll find we'll get into one chapter and there'll be this topic. And then suddenly we go to this topic and we're thinking, James, what do they have to do with one another? I'm not quite sure. But that's just the way he writes. So we'll find it's a bit of a winding road as we go through this book. So if we sung with umph on Easter Day that Christ is risen from the dead, and if we sung one of those great Easter songs again this morning, you know, the greatest day in history, we have been rescued, happy day, then actually what does that mean? What does that mean for the way we live? How is the Spirit transforming us? And so James 2 begins his practical teaching with looking at an issue that actually is highly topical. And it's this issue about favoritism. Now, this is favoritism that flies in the face of intrinsic human worth. It's been great to hear what Paul's been sharing with us this morning about how compassion are looking at intrinsic human worth and value and saying, well, what can we do to lift people out of poverty? How can we change people's day-to-day reality? And we treat other humans differently because we fall into human markers, not looking at what God has said about people. And the issue which James will highlight is, well, how does the church welcome people who appear different? Welcome people who, by human markers, are quite different. People who are exploring 
what faith in Jesus means. Now, I think as a church, and as churches, let's pluralize this, sometimes we can make a big mistake in terms of welcoming people. You know, Jesus welcomes everyone. Absolutely everyone. Jesus never turns anybody away. Read the Gospels. He never turns everybody away, anybody away. He welcomes people who are broken. He welcomes people who are sinners. If he didn't, none of us would be here. And so the church, likewise, has to be that place of absolute, unconditional welcome. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, Paul says he desires all to be saved. And that is absolutely all. But it is so easy, and I think as Christians we can fall into this dangerous trap of thinking that before people can really become part of church community, they have to start to adhere to certain things that make them look respectable. They have to start to do certain things that make them look a bit like me or a bit like you, whatever that might be. Not so, James will say. Absolutely not. That has to be out of the question. And so we have the scene of a Christian meeting. There you go, there's a very early picture of a Christian meeting. Not quite sure what they're doing, eating fish or something or other. Um, but there would be a gathering in a small house, and possibly in the house of, of a wealthy person, because that would be the only time, that, the only space that would be big enough to house people. And there'd probably be 15 to 30 people there. Now, the word that James uses for meeting is the word synagogue, just a reminder that this is written to sort of Jewish believers. And so we have a command in verse 1. If you've got your Bible there, just look at verse 1. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And then uh, then James tells us a little story. And the scene is set. We're there at this church gathering, and there are three people. There is a rich man, there is a poor man, and then there is the person that James calls you. That's me. That's you. And we become the center point of the story. And we're the ones who get absolutely everything wrong in this story. So the you and James' story, we have to think of them as average church member turning up in this church, worshipping Jesus on the day of the resurrection, gathering together for food, for fellowship, for the apostles' teaching, and all those different things that we see the church in Acts would have done. And a new person wanders in. So you can imagine, enter stage left. Enter rich man. And he's dressed in a cloak. Probably some kind of designer label. I'm not quite sure what Roman designer labels were, but you can use your imagination. And he's got a ring on his finger. It would be on his left hand. Because wealthy people in the Roman Empire would wear ostentatious rings on their left hand to show they were wealthy. And the bigger the ring, the more ostentatious, the more wealth you had. If you wanted to trick people, you could also go and hire them um, for the day. And you could wander around with this big ring on your finger and say, look at me, aren't I wealthy? That's not what the the point is here. It's just a bit of an aside, in case you want to hire an ostentatious ring to look wealthy. So he comes in. He is visibly wealthy. It's obvious that this is somebody of social standing. He comes in, he probably smells wonderful as well. He's probably spent his afternoons in the Roman baths, having a sauna, doing these kind of things that wealthy Romans used to do. And he wanders in. The you in the story, that's me, this is you looks at him and says in verse 3, here's a good seat for you. Now, seating at this point in history really mattered. It even does now, doesn't it? If you go and book in to go and see a play or you go to the cinema or you go to a sporting event, there are posh seats that you pay a lot for and then there are the ones that we book that are somewhere right in the gods where you can't see a thing and you wonder why you've bothered. But there are, and different seats say different things. This was massively the case in this sort of period of time. So what has happened? 
or human markers have come into play. The person who's welcoming in the church has actually dismissed the gospel and put in a human marker. I read this um, just this week when I was, I was prepping this. This is from the Forbes website. It says, within the first seven seconds of meeting people, you have a solid impression of, people have a solid impression of who you are. And some research suggests that a tenth of a second is all it takes to start determining traits like trustworthiness. So you get this feeling that what has happened is this rich man has walked into the church, the you in the story, in his seven seconds, has developed a firm opinion of this man, the scales have tipped upwards, and, oh, here's somebody worthy of respect. Here is somebody who deserves the comfy chair. Here is somebody who deserves the ringside seat. Here is somebody who we need to honor. Now, the biblical writers have a lot to say about wealth. You know, Jesus talks about money more than he talks about health. There's an awful lot to say about money because money can grip the human heart. But money actually of itself and wealth of itself are not a problem. It's how we use them. It's what we do with them. It's whether we serve God with open hands and open hearts. But, you know, we do live with human markers, don't we? Wealth is one of them, but there are many other ones. And the minute that is allowed into the church, it upends the gospel and it dismisses the message of the cross ultimately. Now, coming up over the next few weeks, many of our young people will be taking exams and they produce human marker points of education. And I can remember going into exams and being predicted a certain grade and coming out with a grade that perhaps wasn't as well as I probably should have done. And you think, oh dear, I've not done as well as the human marker says I should have done. I also remember going to take a driving test. I won't tell you how many I took. Um, But the first one didn't end well, let's put it that way. It ended up with me nearly crashing the car. And the human marker point said fail. That was what the human marker point said. You know, you may go to a job interview and you may think you've done your absolute best and then you get the phone call saying, really sorry, you've not got the job. The human marker point says not successful. And we live with all these kinds of different marker points. We live with all these kind of different ways of looking at one another. But you know what? If you're taking an exam over the next few weeks, if you've got a dissertation to finish, if you've got a job interview, if you're taking your driving test and that doesn't go the way you hope, in terms of how God sees you, it makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. It's just a human marker. God sees you as intrinsically valued, as loved, loved with a passion from eternity, loved so much that he sent his only son to die for you. I just think we need to keep reminding ourselves of that, that that is how God sees each human being, each and every human being. Now, we get another character. Enter stage right. Let's bring him in from the right. A poor man. He comes in. He's in filthy clothes. Now, the poor in the first century Roman Empire, they really, really would be poor. This man would have nothing. He would probably not smell very nice. He wouldn't look very nice. No afternoon in the baths for him. He might not have had a bath for years. And he comes into the Christian meeting. What happens? The you, the me, the I in the story judges the man and the scales tip downwards. This man is not worthy of being here. This man should actually be sat on the floor at my feet. Do you know what that means? It means that he's at the same place as the dog would be. He's at the same place as the lowest of the low. He's right down on the floor. His intrinsic human value is dismissed. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? 
or because it flies in the face of the gospel. You see, what Jesus will say time and time again, what the Old Testament prophets will say time and time again, is that Christians, we should care passionately for the poor. Read Luke's gospel and you see how Jesus, time and time again, will be ministering to those on the margins of society. But it also matters because the minute we start putting human marker points in, of whatever type they are, is we totally undermine the cross itself. And we undermine the very nature of salvation which is offered freely to all. Look at these words from Romans 3, 23 to 25. For everyone has sinned. You know what? That's a level playing field. Everyone. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. Again, a level playing field. None of our human markers matter one iota. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. The cross is level ground. The grace that lifts us and makes us right with God is freely available to all who turn to him. You see, when we forget that, when we forget that, when we start to judge one another or judge people who are coming into our churches or whatever groups it is, individuals that we meet, we are effectively saying, God, I want, to treat, I want you to treat other people differently than the way you've treated me. And we undermine the very nature of salvation. We're having some work done in our drive and garden at the moment. Um, I'm not quite sure why, why our dog sat there, but that, Claire sent me that picture. Um, but here we go. Here's, here's our drive. And it was an absolute state before it was done. So much so that we were afraid that our car was going to tip into our front garden um, and we'd find it sort of half buried in a bush or something like that. Um, And you can see the bottom left-hand corner is the ground being flattened. The top corner is then the, the stones, the hardcore that's been put on so that then the drive can go on the top. And the amount of time and effort that is taking... Because they've got to, apparently, what are those machine cuts called that go, you know, that you flatten stuff down? Anyone know? What's it called, Steve? A whacker. A whacker. Whacker. Whacker plate. That's a very, very civilized name for it. <laughs> but you know, the thing, you know the thing it is? And it flattens everything down. You have to do it six times, apparently, to make sure that the ground is level. You have to keep going back, and you can't leave any bumps, otherwise the, the ground will be all like this. When we read James chapter 2 and when we see this call to not show any kind of favoritism, to not discriminate, to not look up to people in that kind of way, it is hard work. It is hard work. Getting level ground in our own heart is tough. But James will say to us, but it's absolutely right and it's absolutely essential. And so what we find here is the pause button is pressed. And James then goes on into several verses of explaining something about what he means. But the image is of the rich man sat on the comfy chair and the poor man on the floor. Verse 6, if you've got your Bible there, he asks, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? You know, for, for James, it's not the poor who are causing damage to society, but the rich in their inexhaustible search for wealth. And yet in this mock up scene, the church is bowing to the rich and neglecting the poor. At the point of welcome, the church is failing. One writer summarizes this whole passage and they say this, a person's dignity and worth comes from God, not from fellow humans. So we must not judge others by earthly standards of rank, wealth, attainments, and appearances. In verse 8, James reminds us of this royal law. 
to love your neighbor as yourself. It trips off the tongue nice and easily because we say it a lot in church. But just think about what that actually means. Who is our neighbor? What does the Good Samaritan story tell us? Everybody. Absolutely everybody is our neighbor. Do we really love people as ourselves? Are we thankful that the Spirit has called us to live like this? Are we thankful for the level ground of the cross? You see, James says if we're not, and we continue to show favoritism, then his words are really tough, actually. If you read what he says down in verse 9, he says if we don't do that, then we sin. We sin. If we're showing favoritism, we are falling into sin. Now, sin is one of those words that we perhaps like to use it to explain the things that people do that we don't do. It feels quite comfortable then, doesn't it? So we can point the finger at politicians who over recent days have been caught doing things, and we can say, well, that's sinful. We can talk about insider trading. I don't even know what it is, but we can talk about it and say, well, that sounds sinful. We can talk about people being robbed in the street and say, well, that's sinful as well. Those are not the kinds of things that I do, and it's quite easy to label them. It's even easier to label stuff as sinful that we don't do and don't want to do either. Not that I don't want to do any of those other things, but, you know, those type of things that we think, actually, I just don't want to do them. I don't want to do any of those. But what about when the finger is pointed at our hearts and when it's our attitudes, when it's those things deep within us and the Bible points at us and says, actually, you need to examine your heart. Where are you on this issue? Where are we as a church on this issue? Verse 10 and 11, there is then a stark reminder that to live the Jesus life is to keep all the commands is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. I'm just going to, to read a quote that I think I found particularly helpful um, about this passage by somebody called Robert Smelzer, and it says this, James uses economic status as the basis for prejudice, but we could replace this with any form of discrimination. So we might think about race or gender or disability, and it might be worth picking that up in our small groups this week, and it would work just as well. He goes on to say, this is not to say we never deal with sin. This is not to say we never teach about difficult or controversial topics. But anyone should feel welcome and cared for amongst Christians. How can we ever hope to bring people to Christ if we discriminate against them? That's the message of this passage, really. So then the question for each of us. Are we the you in this story? How do we treat other people? How do we welcome people into our churches? Do we have a passion for the gospel over above human markers? Do we have a passion for Jesus? Are we really Jesus type of people? Sorry, I'll just move on from that one. Psalm 139, there is a prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We could leave it there just with a prayer that God will search our hearts and search where perhaps we are not doing what James encourages us to do here. But I just want to leave one other thought with you. You know, we can discriminate against other people and we can show favoritism to other people, but we can also do it to ourselves. And when we do it to ourselves, then that spills out and we end up doing it to others as well. So you might be sat here today and you might actually have a real downer on yourself and you might be thinking, you know, there are things I've done in my past that God can't forgive. There are things that I've done, if only people knew what I'd done, that they wouldn't accept me. Do you know, we read this passage and we think, well, that is not true. 
The love of God covers everything. God welcomes everybody. We are valued and loved. We can look at other people and think, well, they've got it all sorted, but I've not got it all sorted. How can, how can I be that type of person? And again, Jesus comes to us and he calls us by name and he tells us he loves us and he tells us he accepts us. There is another flip side here as well. The kind of feeling of entitlement as a Christian. Believing that our human status should somehow mean that we have a special status in the life of the community of believers and that we demand special attention. But whether we do one or the other, we then actually live that out to other people. So what I want to do is just leave us with a few scriptures um, just to focus on for a moment. If the worship team could just come up, that'd be really good. Um, I'm just going to read these out. It may be that you just want to use these to reflect in your own heart about who you are and who God says other people are and just think about that level playing field of the cross. So 1 John 3 verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That is how God has named you this morning. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, more things that God says about us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just look at those names again that God has spoken over us. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship, workmanship, we are crafted by God, we are made in his image, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And finally, from 2 Corinthians 5 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And that's what the gospel does. It makes us new in Christ. It calls us outwards to then be able to live that to other people. Let me just pray, and then I'll ask Danny to lead us in a song to close. Lord, we thank you for all the names that you have spoken over us. And Lord, if we're struggling with that this morning, I just pray that by your Spirit, you will just continue to allow those names to rest deep in our hearts. But Lord, I also want to pray that perhaps where we do slip into favoritism or discrimination, the Lord, you will bring us back to your word, the radical message of the gospel that is for absolutely everybody, that the amazing love of God that is just poured out on all humanity. And Lord, you will help us in the way that we treat others to reflect you and so to lead people to saving faith in Jesus. Yeah, Lord, by your spirit, search us, know our hearts, do a fresh work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.